We come back to Hebrews chapter 1. No doubt you've noticed we've taken our time through these first three verses. This is our, I think, sixth sermon in these first three verses. There's a good reason for it. If you look at the text here, you see some amazing and astounding things. So these eight statements that are offered in these three verses speak of the glory and supremacy of Christ. No question about that. As you look at them, you see amazing things said of Christ. And we've looked at the first six of them over the past five weeks. If you just think for a moment at what those things were, week one we saw that God in these final days has spoken by His authoritative Son. That is to say, spoken fully and finally. Prior to this, He called many servants, many prophets, who came and spoke here and there in part and fragment, but now He's spoken fully and finally by His own Son, the perfect prophet. We too, we saw that Christ had been appointed heir of all things. Now in His divinity, that makes sense that He is the holder and owner of everything that exists, but this is speaking too of His mediatory role, isn't it? That He is the, the Messiah, the blessed one who came into time and space and took on this mission of salvation. The perfect king. In fact, we knew he'd be of the line of David, a Davidic king, an heir of the throne of Israel. And yet, this says he has much more than just one throne. He has many thrones. He rules over all nations. This goes back to Psalm 2. It is of him that the psalmist spoke when he quotes God as saying, Ask and I will give you for your inheritance all the nations. All the nations. Well, that's expanded even further, isn't it? To say, He isn't just over the nations, He's over everything that exists. Every created thing, He is the heir of. And so again, astounding to think of. Week three, we looked at Christ is the one through whom the worlds were made. Everything made. Ions. This can mean age or world. It's an plural. So, All things, that's why some translations say that He is the one through whom the universe was created. All the cosmos created through Him, by Him, and for Him. So again, an astounding picture. Week 4, we looked at two descriptions that are parallel. That He is the brightness of God's glory. The apogosma, when you see Him, it's like the rays of the sun. It lets you know the sun is there. He reveals for you the Son. He's of the same substance as the Father. So again, this amazing uh, picture that we see here. But then he goes on to say he's also uh, the exact image of his person. We talked about how that's a, a tricky one to translate. He is the stamping of his substance. It means that if you had a perfect coin die, it would, the coin would look just like it. And yet he's of the same substance as the Father. There is... Uh, Deep theology here we tried to look at that Sunday in understanding our triune God. But again, this tells us uh, that this is important. He is the imprint of the Father's substance. Now, last Sunday, we looked at the sixth description of the glory and majesty of Christ. He, meaning Christ, upholds all things. Now, this is parallel to the statement that through Him all things were created. But it doesn't mean that He just created them and they sit there. It means that they continue to exist because of Him. He upholds them and sustains them by what? His word of power. His powerful word. Through Him, 
Everything that exists stays together. And if he stopped doing it for just one moment, the universe would decay into chaos. My friends, these statements are astounding to behold. But they tell us some important things. Now today we want to look at two more, the final two complementary statements, to see another amazing description of the glory of Christ. The author of Hebrews says that he purged the sins of those who have faith in Christ. And having accomplished that great work, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. The author says, God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by His Son, whom He has appointed heir of all things, through whom also He made the worlds, who being the brightness of His glory and the express image of His person and upholding all things by the word of His power, when He had by Himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high having become so much better than the angels as he has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. My friends, there are so many glorious truths in this short section of Scripture, but today we want to look at two points. First of all, a sacrificial mission, and second of all, a completed mission. A completed mission. So beginning first with this idea of a sacrificial mission, and that's where we want to begin, that's where the text begins. Now, we just walked through some amazing descriptions of the second person of the Holy Trinity. In fact, most of these descriptions focus on cosmic aspects of His person and work, that He is the radiance of God, the uh, exact image of His person or imprint of His substance, how through Him the worlds were made, everything was made, and that He is the heir of all these things. These are cosmic in nature, tremendous things to behold, maybe too great for our minds to comprehend. And yet this description that we're reading today speaks of an action that Christ did as He entered time and space. That He came into this world to accomplish and to accomplish once and for all. Let's look at it. Let's see how the author of the letter puts it. He says, When He had by Himself purged our sins. As we begin to look at the statement, we instantly recognize the greatness of it. The greatness of this statement, that it exists at the heart of all that we hold dear as believers. Christ made purification for sin. He made purification for sin. Now we find a theme which unites this statement today with all that we've been looking at before. Because although those things were cosmic in relationship to His person and work, and yet this is similar in one sense that it's saying that it's only Christ who could accomplish this. Only Christ. There was no way that man could atone for his own sin or purge his own sin. There was no one else to do this. Christ alone came into the world. Christ alone could accomplish this. Now, it's the very reason He entered the world. You may remember just a very short time ago, on Palm Sunday, we had a sermon on the finished work of Christ. And key in this, one of the texts we looked at was, as Paul writes to Timothy, that this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. It's the reason He came in. Now, it's important for us not to overlook that. He did many great things in the course of that mission. He taught many great truths. 
Was the teacher so great that as we've seen on Sunday nights, people were shocked at the authority of his teaching? He has authority over illness and evil spirits, all these sorts of things. He has authority. He taught many things. He healed many people temporally. And yet, none of that, the Scriptures say, is the primary reason he came into the world. Those things happened along the way in support of his mission. Signs of who he was and why he came. His teaching uh, showing that he is the very word of God. And yet, the purpose he came was to save sinners. That was the purpose he entered the world. To purge our sins. And so immediately we see that it's important. In fact, you say, well, we just went through this at length. I preached this yesterday, more or less. Ephesians 5, at that reception, we went through how Christian marriage and the gospel are linked together. So I say, why preach it again? Because this is the gospel. This is the heart of all that we hold dear and true, all that we believe, all that we cling to, all that we hope in. Christ Jesus entered the world to save sinners. And I could join Paul, of whom I am chief. I needed Christ. I could not deliver myself, and neither could you. So again, it's key that we understand this, and it's key to the argument of this letter. Christ is not just another Aaron. Aaron was great. The Levitical priesthood was great in the Old Testament, yet Christ is greater. His priesthood, according to the order of Melchizedek, is greater. Now we can go through this letter and see the argument, although you can by inference, as you read through the Scriptures, you will understand this. What do we know about the Levitical priesthood? They ran through these cultic practices over and over and over and over, year after year after year. Why? Because the blood of bulls and goats was not able to satisfy. It pointed forward to the one who could satisfy, but they themselves could not, and so their work was literally never completed. They could never sit down. They could never rest. They could never stop. It had to be offered over and over and over again. Christ is greater than Aaron, just as His priesthood is greater than that of the Levites. Why? Because His work was once and for all. It's important to ask, well, why was this even necessary? Because of rebellion against God, which is sin. And because of that sin, mankind was alienated from a holy and righteous God. Yet God sent forth His own Son, who entered the world and did the most astounding thing imaginable. You know, many of the commentators, as they look at this text, think that the text is in some way growing in glory. I don't know if that's accurate or not, but it certainly puts what Christ accomplished here in the same category of glorious things here. Through Him, the world was created, the universe was created. Yes. He's the exact image of God's glory. Yes. And He's the one who purged our sins. My friends, this is key to understanding the doctrines of the church. Because of this rebellion against God, mankind is alienated from a holy and righteous God. Yet God's own Son entered the world. And what is this astounding thing that He did? It's not just that He's the high priest. I mean, Hebrews is going to make a great deal about Him being the perfect high priest. But the most astounding thing is, He was both the high priest and the sacrifice. He was both. The high priest would offer a sacrifice on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, and he would 
carry the blood into the Holy of Holies and he would sprinkle that blood upon the Ark of the Covenant. It wasn't his blood. It was the blood of an animal. But what Christ Jesus did was as the perfect high priest offer a sacrifice of himself, his own blood. My friends, that is astounding to behold. The perfect priest and the perfect sacrifice. And look at the boldness with which this author proclaims this. It's amazing when you think about it. Because we know that he's writing to Hebrew believers. Jewish Christians, he's writing to them saying, listen, before you walk away from Christ, recognize that He's the fullness of everything that you claim to hold in the Old Testament. Everything. And what does the Scriptures tell us? What does Paul say is a stumbling block unto the Jews? Cross, right? The cross. Christ dying. It's foolishness to the Greeks and it's a stumbling block to the Jews. And yet, this author doesn't run from it. Arthur Pink makes a great deal about this. He says he doesn't run from it. He stands and says, Christ Jesus died on Calvary's cross to purge our sins. What an amazing work. Now behold this astounding truth found in this text. The perfect priest, the perfect sacrifice, the perfect mediator, the perfect atonement, the perfect purging of sin, all united in this one person and work. All united here. In Christ, He purged our sins. He purged them. Katharismos, this idea of purifying us from the stain of sin. Purifying us. Maybe instead of purging, that's how your translation has it. He purified us. It means roughly the same thing. To take away the stain of sin is to purify something. If something was defiled, it had to be purified. Martin Lloyd-Jones says it's much like if a stain happens on a on a tablecloth or something like that, you need a, a proper chemical. If you start trying to clean it with the wrong thing, your mother or your spouse, somebody comes along and says, no, no, that's the wrong thing. It's not what's needed. Not very different from the argument here. We had a defilement that we had no way to clean. There was only one proper cleansing agent, and that is the blood of Jesus Christ. And so God provided His own Son, the perfect atonement, not only paid the price for sin, but also washed us white as snow. Isaiah 1.18 says, Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be as wool. My friends, that is the picture of purification that only God can do. God is promising His people in Isaiah 1. We've looked at that passage so many times through the years. A people who are running through religious motions thinking that this will save them. I go to temple when I should. I offer the right sacrifices. I say the right prayers. And God says, no, you don't. None of it means anything. God says, I'm not even hearing your prayers anymore. I don't listen to them. I'm looking for a people who from a contrite heart and spirit, as David said in Psalm 51, come before me in repentance and thanksgiving and worship, not running through motions that you think somehow atone, but from a heart of contrition. That's why David says in Psalm 51, what better psalm could we have had this morning than that one? David says, I could go offer sacrifices down at the temple. I could go down there. I could, I guess at that time it's the tabernacle. I could walk down to the tabernacle. I could, I could offer a sacrifice. But that's not ultimately what you're looking for. You're looking for, for a contrite heart and spirit. 
The external means nothing if the internal's not committed to the idea of repentance. It's just walking through physical motions. And God makes this clear over and over again. And we see it here. That Christ is able to purge us white as snow. God says in Isaiah, Turn to me in faith and repentance and I can wash you white as snow. Not, not these motions you're running through. I can wash them. And though your sins are scarlet, make no mistake about it, your sins are great. You are stained by sin. Contaminated by sin. But I can wash you white as snow. I can make you look like the most pure wool there is. Now, when you take that in combination with what we're looking at today, something amazing strikes our minds. This is not like we might do where we clean our carpet and a year later we're like, didn't we just clean the carpet? We wash the tablecloth and we're like, how did it get stained already again? This purging, this purification of sin is described as once and for all unfinished. Once and for all unfinished. It doesn't mean that we don't have a a duty to repent of sin ongoing in the life of a believer, but it means this is not something where it's got to be scrubbed over and over again. We repent of sin, yes. We we ask for forgiveness, these sorts of things, but he is saying this is a once and for all accomplishment of Christ who by himself purged our sins. Some of your translations don't have that wording. Who by himself. I love that wording. It's in the Byzantine text. So if you've got a King James Version, you've got it. If you've got a New King James, a Geneva, you can go down the list of Bibles that will have it. Historic Bibles of the Faith had it, the Tyndale Bible. But of course, it's not in the Alexandrian manuscripts, which are older. And so it's not in the New Translations. It's not in the ESV. It's not in all those new ones. But I like this wording because it's true, right? Now, whether or not it's on the oldest, most accurate manuscripts, whatever, I don't, it's still true. We say, well, in what way is it true? What does it mean to say Jesus by himself purged our sins? Well, what it is not saying, let's start there, is that God the Father and the Holy Spirit had nothing to do with this work of redemption. It is not arguing that. As we go back just a few weeks, we talked about the works that were specifically given to Christ economically, the things that Christ carried out. We said all works of God are works of God, the triune God whether it be creation or salvation or whatever it is, God is involved in it all. But what it is saying is that Christ did this by Himself. Now, we've got to think about how this is meant. By Himself means that He accomplished it in Himself. The sacrifice was Himself. You see the difference there? Not that He did it alone, but that He Himself was the sacrifice that He offered, that He purged our sin by Him, by His body, by His sacrifice. He offered it and He was the sacrifice. Now the author of Hebrews will use other similar phrasings that will help us. Later on, he'll say, by His own blood, or by means of His own death, or by the sacrifice of Himself. These mean the same thing. He means that Christ purged our sin by His own blood, by His own death, by His own body, by Him, in Him. He accomplished this in Himself. So he's trying to focus on the fact that He accomplished it by means of His own person. He was the priest, yes, but He was also the sacrifice. 
The heart of the gospel is that Christ has completed His work of atonement, which purged believers of their sins. Now, that's necessary for them to be reconciled to a holy and righteous God. You know, when you walk through Romans, as we did for a very long time, you come to the question that Paul is wrestling with, that Paul, I believe, had wrestled with before he wrote the letter. I think that Luther clearly wrestled with, which is this. How do we understand the gospel? How do we wrestle with the gospel? Because the gospel tells us, the scriptures tell us clearly God is perfectly holy and perfectly righteous. And that we are corrupted by sin so that we are not righteous and not holy. How can we be reconciled? How is it possible that we can be reconciled? And the answers the world gives us are obviously wrong. Luther recognized this. Luther even recognized that the Catholic answer was wrong. As a great scholar in in the Catholic Church, he recognized this answer is not possibly right. It can't be, do more penance. Because I am a fallen sinner, how can my penance ever avail anything with a perfectly holy and righteous God? It cannot. It doesn't matter if I do one act of penance or a billion acts of penance. It can do nothing to justify me before God. He recognized the problem. When I pulled up Yahoo, there was an interesting article there yesterday in which a Catholic theologian was, I can't remember the title of the article, I meant to print it out and bring it with me this morning, but it said it's time we rid ourselves of this idea of atonement, something to that effect. The idea was this doesn't portray God well, you know. This doesn't portray God well, that he demanded the death of his son. This is the nonsense the world is feeding us today. And it takes two seconds to defeat these arguments with the Scriptures. It says, where does it say that God demands death or blood? Many places. Hebrews alone makes this argument. You don't even have to leave this one book to find the argument that without the shedding of blood there is no remission for sin. Yet this is the nonsense the world wants to say that here's our new ideas on what God is really about and what we should care about. My friends, the scriptures come to us over and over again to talk about the gospel message. It says, listen, you cannot be reconciled in yourself to God. You can gussy yourself up, clean yourself up, climb as high as you can. You cannot reach perfection. You cannot stand before a holy and righteous God. You cannot. The high priest would have been considered the holiest man in all of Israel. He rarely was, by the way. You know, you can go back and read about some of the high priests. But he was supposed to be. And yet even him, how often could he enter the presence of God, the Holy of Holies, one day a year, and really one time a year. And even then had to go through all sorts of ritual washings and purifications. And then he entered and they said that they would tie a rope around his waist, that if he had a sinful thought in the presence of God would drop dead, they had no way to retrieve him. So they would pull him out. This is the one that all the priests would aspire to be. He wasn't holy enough to stand before God. And even then, for just a short time, once a year. But my friends, what the gospel tells us is that Christ has made a way to purge our sins, that we might stand before a holy and righteous God. And the question is, how is it done? Well, Paul and Martin Luther and many of us have wrestled with this and Come back to the same place. Paul expressed it this way. 
that the gospel is the answer to the problem of how God can forgive sin and remain holy. Now we try to use basic illustrations here. Basic illustrations. People say, as this Catholic theologian did in that article last night, God can just forgive sin. No one has to die. He can just, by His grace and mercy, say, swipe clean. Well, that's some great thinking from this person, but is it biblically accurate? No. God does not say that He can simply overlook sin. That would make Him a part and party of the sin. Just simply ask you to think in terms we can easily understand in this world, an example that we've used over and over. If a judge let guilty people walk out of his courtroom with no punishment over and over again, would you say, boy, that's a gracious judge. That's a great judge. That's a loving judge. Ray Comfort has used this illustration for years. You wouldn't say, what a good judge. You would say, we need to impeach that judge. That judge is a wicked and unrighteous judge. For he does not care that these criminals go on raping and killing, and he does nothing about it. Now the Scriptures say God cannot abide sin, and that there is a penalty placed upon sin, and that penalty is death. So again, God's not going to simply overlook sin. Well, what does the gospel tell us? The gospel tells us that Christ came into the world, lived in perfect obedience to the law, took our sin, condemnation, and curse upon himself, died in our stead, that now we can stand in his righteousness. Paul says, it is how God can be both the just, he can be righteous, and the justifier of those who have faith in Christ. That's the gospel. It's how God is just and yet can forgive us our sins. To walk down this further, you've got to get into some pretty mysterious... Paul, in fact, in the passage in Ephesians that I preached yesterday, Paul is speaking about marriage and the joining of a, a man and a woman. For this reason, a man shall leave his mother and father and cleave to a woman, and they shall become one flesh. And he says, I'm speaking of a mystery here, a mysterion, something that God has to reveal or we wouldn't understand it. He says, I'm speaking about Christ and His church. My friends, we stand in Christ. We are united to Christ in Him. We can stand in His righteousness. And we are united to Him by faith. By faith. That is the gospel. That He, by Himself, purged our sins. Well, that brings us to our second point, and it'll be quick. A completed mission. Because that's the glorious thing that this text wants us to realize. Because it says, not only that He, by Himself, purged our sins, but it says, when He had, by Himself, purged our sins, He sat down at the right hand of the Majesty on high. You know, as we look back on Palm Sunday, as we looked at the Gospel of John and the Atonement of Christ, you know, we spoke about the centrality of the cross in that work, the centrality of it. He came into the world to go to Calvary's cross. It was necessary. He could not bear our curse if he didn't. Paul tells us that, right? Cursed is everyone who dies upon a tree. Paul is saying to us, it was necessary that he die, not only that he died, that he become obedient to death, but also the death of the cross. It was necessary. And that it was finished in that death. How do we know that? Well, Christ himself said it, didn't he? To Terestai. It is finished. His powerful words from the cross. And yet, even though the work the atoning work, the purifying work was done at that moment. 
there's still a further story to rejoice in, isn't there? Yes, they took him to the tomb and they buried him, but he didn't stay in that tomb. He arose, and then he ascended. And then as this text tells us and points to, as we see in Psalm 110, he was enthroned at the right hand of the Father. Now, we're speaking here of the finished work of Christ. That he could sit down. What priest could do that? What high priest is ever referred to in all of scriptures as having sat down his work being finished? In fact, you get just the opposite, don't you? As you read about the orders of the priesthood. They had to create orders of priesthood and they would serve at different times on the calendar. Why? Because the work never ended. You would literally be exhausted. They had team upon team upon team of priests who carried out the work. Why? Because it never ended. They could never sit down. If they wanted to sit down, they had to clock out first. Go home. We'll see you again next year at this time. My friends, the high priest's big activity besides kind of governing things in the temple, was on Yom Kippur. This was his day to shine. But that never ended either, did it? No matter how great the high priest was, it was never more complete than the year before. No matter how much more sanctified he might be a year later, it would not be any more complete next year. It was ongoing over and over again, and yet this text tells us that Christ, having offered this atonement, having purged our sins, sat down. Now this is speaking as priest, yes. As our intercessor, yes. As our mediator, yes. As king, yes. All these things. But he could sit down because his atoning work was complete. Was complete. His purging work complete for all time. I like what one commentator said about this. He said, don't make the mistake that because his work is completed that he's doing nothing now. He still has an important role. He is active constantly, but not in atoning, not in purging. His work now is in interceding on behalf of us, offering mercy in our times of trial and tribulation. These are the things that Christ is doing for us now. One other little aspect of this that goes back to the perfect king, one of those pictures, perfect priest, perfect prophet, perfect king, is that there's this interesting thing. There is someone who sat down in the presence of God in the temple. It's mentioned one time. It's mentioned in the history books. 2 Samuel 7, 18 says that David went into the presence of the Lord and sat down. There's another reference Ezekiel gives, 44, I believe, Ezekiel chapter 44, verse 3. And he says that this, this prophecy of this Davidic prince who will one day enter into the temple and sit in the presence of God. These are pictures, glorious pictures, of what our Christ has accomplished. There is much that can be said here, but in this first three verses, let's forget even the fourth verse for a second, although it is part of this, but let's think about these first three verses. In this, these eight statements confirm to us that Christ is the perfect prophet. No one can come speaking better than Him. He is perfect God, perfect man. He is the one who can bring forth fully God and fully man the Word of God to men. But He is the one who is the heir of everything because He is the perfect King. He is the one who can sit at the right hand of the Majesty on high, enthroned there with the Father. Again, perfect King. 
He's also the perfect priest. He alone could purge our sins, offer the perfect atonement, intercede on our behalf today. That is the job of a priest, to intercede on behalf of his people. Christ intercedes for his people perfectly, even today. My friends, this text tells us many, many things, but it tells us that. He is the fulfillment of all those important offices of the Old Testament. There's another reason we wanted to spend quite a bit of time in this. I was going back through, I didn't get to read Pink on the first week. And I was reading, he said something really amazing. He said that verses 1 through 3 are not only an introduction and summary, not only an introduction, but a summary of the doctrine of the entire letter. I don't suggest we stop now, but what he's arguing is if you rightly understand these three verses, you understand the letter. The reason he goes on is he's going to explain this. Well, wait a minute. How is it Christ is the perfect high priest? Well, I'll spend a few chapters explaining that to you. How is it that he is perfectly enthroned in heaven? Well, let's look at it. How is he the prophet? I mean, he's not greater than Moses, is he? Well, let's look at it. We've walked through these first three verses carefully because they set us up for the rest of this letter as we walk through it. And I pray as you think about all this says about Christ, that your reaction is to be amazed at His glory. To not think of Him in a lowly way, but to recognize that Christ Jesus is glorious. Glorious. That He alone could accomplish the things that He accomplished. That He alone could purge our sin. He alone could offer atonement. He alone could save us from the wrath of God by taking that wrath upon Himself. I don't care what any theologian says. You get rid of that argument, you get rid of Christianity. You get rid of the faith that has been handed down to us. You make a shipwreck of it. And the only reason you could believe that is you haven't read the Bible. wonder how much time this theologian has spent in the Word of God if they really thought you can just divorce all that stuff from the text. That's there over and over from the very beginning of God's Word. Do not be fooled, brothers and sisters. Christ came and gave His life that we might stand in Him. He became sin who knew no sin that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. In Him. Standing in Him. My friends, in His righteousness. That is what the author of Hebrews is trying to get us to see right out of the gate. When you look at Christ, you don't see another Moses. As great as Moses was. You don't see another Elijah as great as Elijah was. When you look at Christ, you see the very apogosma of God, the very glory of God. His Son, His perfect Son, who gave His life that our sins might be purged and we might be made as white as snow. Amen.